The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. What makes for a successful career? Is it money? Power? Recognition? I think on some level, we're all just trying to figure this out. And the answer changes as we grow. Today's guest started off with one goal. I knew one thing. I wanted to get as wealthy as possible as quickly as possible. <laughs> uh, particularly given and, you know, where I was raised, how I was raised. Um, you know, Opportunity and wealth um, is something that I had sought uh, from a young age. That's Tristan Walker. He's founder of Walker & Company. I've followed Tristan's career for more than a decade, and so I can tell you that he's successful. He started a company that he sold to P&G, and he's not even 40 yet. But then, Tristan did something unexpected. He was a darling of Silicon Valley. He'd worked with companies like Twitter and Andreessen Horowitz, and then two years ago, he turned away from it all. He chose a different path. Tristan's career has a lot to show us about how we balance meaning and money, and what it means to leave a legacy. So let's go back to 2008. Facebook hasn't gone public. Twitter's still new. And Tristan has arrived at Stanford Business School, knowing almost nothing about tech companies. I was 24, and it wasn't until I got out there that I saw other 24-year-olds not only you know, fundamentally changing the world, but making a lot of money doing it. Right? Um, and I felt, wow, why didn't I have any idea about this place? And I wanted to dive kind of headfirst into it. I knew Stanford was well-known for entrepreneurship. Um, but I didn't know how well-known Silicon Valley was more broadly, right? And I wanted to devour it all. And 2008 was really the, the best possible time for that, which was awesome. Well, tell me about business school and what came after. Yeah. The thing that I'd like to tell a lot of folks is, you know, Stanford Business School is great, but you know it's even better. The fact that you're across the street from Stanford Law School, top law school, um, medical school, top engineering school, right? And this idea, an opportunity to collaborate cross-discipline when you're literally across the street, I think is what makes the Stanford Business School experience, but it's what makes Stanford Stanford. So, you know, being in the middle of, you know, zip code 94305, I really got an understanding around what it took to build great, innovative, collaborative companies. So first year in business school, um, I got the good fortune to work at Twitter when there were about 20 people at the company. Um, in between my first and second year of business school, uh, I joined a small company at a time called Foursquare. Um, as its first employee and ended up running business development for them for about three years and a hell of a ride that was. So Tristan, that's the first time I remember learning about you in your career. And you have yeah. a great story for how you got that job at Foursquare. Tell us that story. Yeah. yeah. Um, infamous emails. Um, so, you know, the story goes, I was, I was enamored with, with the product, the company, what it represented. And it was really changing my lifestyle and the way that Twitter helped me really rethink communication. Um, Foursquare helped me rethink my interaction with place. So, you know, I found Dennis and Naveen, the co-founders at the time, their emails on the internet. Don't ask me how, I just did. <laughs> um, and I emailed them. And, you know, the running story is I didn't get a response the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, all the way up until the eighth time. Um, and that was going to be the last time I was going to email. And miraculously, Dennis got back to me. He said verbatim, uh, you know what? I just may take you up on some of this. Are you ever in New York? Um, and at that point, I told him, yes, I was in L.A. at the time and I booked my flight that night, flew out the following morning 
you know, hung out with him for a week. Um, and a month later, I was running a business development for the company um, and it completely changed my life. That was a bold move to just get on a plane, particularly when you're a student and while you endeavored to be very rich in the future, my guess is you weren't yeah. quite there yet. Yeah, no, not at all. Still not. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what did Foursquare teach you? It taught me a lot. Um, first of all, the importance of product. How are you doing what the users want, what they need? And also taught me the importance of brand. Like Foursquare had a really, really great brand. And the thing that I was most proud of at that time, you know, I learned this lesson that brand is not what you say it is, it's what they say it is. And, you know, if you go around, you know, South by Southwest is a perfect example. We started to understand what users felt we were, and it really matched what our vision was. And we knew we had something pretty special. In 2012, Tristan Walker left Foursquare to join one of the hottest VC firms in the Valley, Andreessen Horowitz. He became their entrepreneur in residence, which can mean a few different things. You know, it's an interesting job. I think it takes two routes. Usually the traditional route is an entrepreneur that has a relationship with a venture capital firm will be asked to join that firm for a fixed period of time, right? It could be three months. It could be up to nine months. It could be longer than that. There are a few things that that entrepreneur might do. Um, that entrepreneur might help the venture capitalist source deals. That entrepreneur might help the portfolio companies be better at what they do in a specific domain or function. Or that entrepreneur might end up being a venture partner at that firm. The other route is the route that I took. I'm just thinking of ideas every single day. Right? <laughs> and I had the good fortune, um, in addition to that, to you know participate in pitches. right? So we'd see some of the best startups in the world come and pitch partners. And I just get to sit in. So I got a sense for how they invested, what they invested in, what they looked for, what ambition meant right, in this category. Um, so I was well prepared um, by the time I started my company to know kind of what they lean into potentially. So there are a lot of good ideas in the world. There are fewer good ideas that also make for good companies where you are the best person to make the idea into the company. So how did you figure that part out? And what yeah. did you launch? I learned a lesson from, from Ben Horowitz. He would say, Tristan, you know, usually what looks like good ideas are bad ideas. And it usually looks like bad ideas are good ideas. You know, the problem with good ideas is that everybody tries to do them. <laughs> with bad ideas, you have fewer people trying to do it. And the quintessential example that I always give is like Airbnb. Like on, on service, it's a terrible idea, right? The fact that you like invite folks to come spend time in like your kind of second bedroom, like that's crazy on the surface, but they've created $30 billion in value, right? Um, so I started to think, you know, what are the bad ideas that other people would perceive to be bad ideas with this kind of a creative kind of value unlock? Um, and then the second thing was, what did I feel uniquely positioned and authentically positioned to do and to do better than anyone else? That's how Tristan came up with the idea for Walker & Company. It's a health and beauty company for people of color. His first product is a single blade razor system called Bevel. You know, for quite a long time, you know, I was unable to you know, use health and beauty products that have worked for me. I was always relegated to a retail experience and made me feel like a second class citizen. I felt that there was a lack of respect for not only um, our purchasing power, you know, when I'm thinking about people of color, but particularly black folks, our cultural influence on the world and the fact that we over-index and spend in pretty much every category. Who was going to build the health and beauty products conglomerate company serving the needs of this audience, right? Um, that is digitally native, right? Understanding how technology can actually establish a kind of deeper connection with that community. Uh, and I felt at that time, uh, that I was the best person in the world to do that with the ability to raise the money for it, et cetera. And why did I think it was a bad idea? Because 
everybody else, other venture capitalists kind of down Santa Road, didn't like it. And I knew that I understood something that perhaps they did not yet. What gave you the confidence to pursue your bad idea, particularly if you're telling me that investors weren't necessarily sold on it at the beginning? Yeah. I mean, the thing that gave me confidence is, number one, I was an expert, right, in understanding what the problem was. Yeah. Bevel really started as, um, you know, the first end-to-end shaving system to eliminate razor bumps, irritation, et cetera. It's a problem that I've had, you know, 15 years of my life. And, you know, no one was there to teach me how to shave, with what to shave, and there were no products to help me kind of fix the issue. It's a problem that 80% of people who look like me have, 30% of others who don't. That's men and women, right? Um, and, you know, this industry has been around for over 100 years. Nobody's tried to solve it. So I had an expertise in the problem. Number two, you know, the ability to raise the money for it, right? Particularly as someone who's an authentic part of the community. And as you know, at the time, there weren't as many folks who looked like me who had the access, right, to acquire that capital, which is a shame for a whole bunch of other reasons, but um, it just was a fact. Um, And then- And and continues to be. Correct. And then, you know, the leveraging of everything that I've learned, you know, Foursquare, Twitter, um, Stanford, CERTA, um, to build it differently, right, for a modern age, uh, for an America that in 20 years, you know, will be majority people of color, for a world that currently is majority people of color that is so culturally influential, uh, that has the purchasing power that it has. Um, So I felt confident because I just was a part of it. Does that make sense? And it was the first time, you know, to go back to that idea of like privilege, that I was starting to hear no a lot, right? Like there are a lot of folks that believe from my Foursquare days, Twitter days, et cetera, that whatever company I'd start, like they'd be excited to support. And it wasn't until I came up with this idea that, you know, the hypocrisy reigned. <laughs> well, as somebody who's covered venture capital for years and years too, it's one thing I've noticed is that all investors don't want to be the first one in, but yeah. they don't want to be blocked out. So yeah. they love you. They love you. They love you. Come back to them. They're just busy this week. They're just uh, pause, <laughs> pause, pause, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, one thing that I learned, and this will, you know, potentially piss a lot of people off, but it's just true. Venture capitalists are wrong over 90% of the time, right? The really good ones, right? So it's almost like it's it's your job or you're incentivized to kind of swing for the fences and be wrong, right? And sometimes I had to realize, like, am I wrong 90% of the time, <laughs> right? Like, it's not my job to be wrong 90% of the time. So some of it, too, is like you have to take the yeses and the nos, like with a kind of heaping teaspoon of salt, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, because you might just have recognized something that they haven't recognized yet. And that was, a, for me, the first time that I really knew, because I knew that this product had to exist. I just knew it, you know? Yeah. Um, and to this day, uh, there are some venture capitalists who still believe that it perhaps wasn't the right idea. But, you know, that's fine. I did it. <laughs> well, so when you launched your company, you named it for yourself. Uh, you named it Walker & Company. And I know that that was a very deliberate decision, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. At Stanford, you know, there's a case written about the company. And, uh, you know, one of the questions is, you know, should he have named the company after himself? And, you know, it's interesting when the students kind of answer the question. I'll never forget the first time I was in the class and there was a student that said, you know, I think it's tacky. (laughs) (laughs) So I laughed. And then, you know, I replied, well, have you ever heard of Johnson & Johnson? Have you ever heard of Procter & Gamble? Right. And there's like a, an audible silence in, in the room. And it was as if I was not able to do that myself without um, his understanding a reason. Right. Um, and, you know, for that kind of POV. 
so you know why did I name the company after myself? I think there are a couple couple reasons. Number one, I think I deserve to be able to express as much ambition for what we have for the company as Procter Gamble Johnson's did, right? Secondly, uh, particularly since we're in the age that we are, establishing that one-to-one connection. Like you know that that Walker guy is on Twitter, Instagram, etc. He's answering you know, not only the tweets, Instagram comments, but also the customer service tickets, right? Like I'm in it, right? And then lastly, you know, with that name comes a set of values that matter, right? That we try and promulgate across all of our brands and it holds me accountable, right? It forces me to be consistent. And yeah, it's my name, but you know what else? It's my wife's name. It's my two boys' name, right? (laughs) And it's something that should carry, right? Um, And I wanted to build a company that was still going to be around 150 years from now. And I want those values to carry for just as long. So what did you learn while you were running that company as a startup? I am six years older. I've had two children over that time. I've gone through everything that startup can go through. The raising tens of millions of dollars, up rounds, down rounds, uh, layoffs, right? Losses. And I've been through it. And the thing that I learned, at least in the experience, is look, startups are not easy. I say it somewhat facetiously, like being a CEO sucks, but it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And I don't think I'll ever do anything ever again. It allows me to, at least as we think about this company, um, to support the community in ways that I wouldn't have been able to do it myself with a team of folks that is also representative of the community. And it allows us to do even more with that, but also recognize at least over the past six, seven years that I've been running the business is that you know, there's an appropriate way of running the business that is very different from just starting it. I get a lot of entrepreneurs who come to me and say, you know, Tristan, 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 you know, I want to start a company, right? And my first question to them is always, well, do you want to run it? And you'd be surprised, probably 100% of the time, folks haven't thought that far, <laughs> right? Really? Like they're two very different things. Yeah, you're managing folks who have families at home, right? This is their livelihood what the company represents, it has to be a good steward of those values because, you know, it's a choice that they make to work with us. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, Tristan faces a real darkness before the dawn moment, and then everything changes. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. 
Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. My guest today is Tristan Walker. In 2018, his company was six, and everything had started to get harder. So in January of that year, we started to get a lot of inbound requests from large incumbent companies to potentially acquire us. And we weren't ready at the time. We were growing. We thought we were doing well. We thought um, in, in March of that year, we were going to go out and raise more money. And then we couldn't, right? So much so that you know we had to do a bridge round, down round kind of thing. And we needed to make the company you know grow fast, right? And sustain itself. Um, and that was one of the kind of most important lessons that I had learned that um, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to raise money. And there's also no guarantee that um, investors will continue to be interested in the category, even if you're growing. Having control of your destiny was critical to me. It was a huge lesson learned. So April, we can raise money. May, we can raise money. Uh, and in June, you know, I spoke to my COO, uh, Joanne. I said, Joanne, um, you know, either we're going to do one of a couple of things. We're either going to kind of tighten up the ship and try and get the profitability, right? Oh, we're going to start to entertain some of these um, kind of conversations with the large incumbents because it's going to take a lot of our time. And if we're going to go in, we're going to go in. And we went back to first principles. Like, why did this company start in the first place? It's so that it can be around 150 plus years from now. <laughs> and in that, in June, right, Procter & Gamble knocked on the door. It was around like the same week we were having that conversation, funny enough. Um, about a couple of weeks later, they came to visit. We realized our values and our mission were the exact same. Um, we said, you know, let's make this happen. It was a wonderful, um, you know, fate in a lot of ways, right? That, you know, we were able to to kind of match. And I'll leave you with one interesting, fun story. The very first article that was ever written about us, uh, the title was Tristan Walker is building the Procter & Gamble for people of color. This was on December 12th of 2013, I think. And then we announced on December 12th of 2018. It was kind of just one of those Five years later. Of, yeah, exactly. Tristan day. was actually perhaps beginning to help Procter & Gamble be the Procter Gamble for people <laughs> of color. Well, the funny, the funny iron, ironic thing is when people said that, they said it as if it's niche. I'm like, no, this is a majority proposition. So if we're building the Procter & Gamble for people of color, you know, what's the alternative? <laughs> right? Um, but anyway. In that your career has made up a lot of chapters in which you do something that you have never done before, whether it's go to finance or go to business school or start a company. Were you nervous in the summer of 2018 about what it might mean to go from running a startup to being a part of a larger company? Not at all, because deals have financial terms and they have non-financial terms, right? Um, it's very important for me um, that Walker & Company operated autonomously. It was very important to me that I'd still be the CEO of Walker & Company. It was very important to me that through that autonomy, um, we can still leverage all the resources that came to bear at PNG. And finally, it was important to me to set up the infrastructure in partnership with them so that this wouldn't be a company or a brand that shut down in a couple of years. Like it has the power of legacy, right? I'm the first Black CEO in their 180-year history. And that's meaningful for a multitude of reasons. They were willing to take, put a stake in the ground and say, you know what? 
our proposition is a majority proposition. <laughs> How can we partner with a company like Walker Company that shares that same ambition and values in order to get there? And I have to admit, like they have been fulfilling their side of the bargain ever since that December 12, 2018 announcement. Here's where Tristan did something unexpected. His startup was based in California and P&G's headquarters were in Cincinnati. As a condition of the deal, Tristan moved Walker and Company to Atlanta. I visited in 2018. And I visited um, Stanford in 2008. And in 2008, you just felt that there's an energy, like something was about to happen, right? Like, you know, Stripe was literally, you know, a five-employee company a block away from my home. Palantir wasn't as big. Like, Facebook wasn't as big. Airbnb like, wasn't as big. Like, there was an energy um, that I felt. In Atlanta, I, I felt the same energy when I visited, but in every industry media and entertainment, technology. Atlanta is flanked by a multitude of Fortune 500 businesses. Atlanta has an infrastructure that I don't think any other city has. And I think Atlanta is the most important city in the country for that reason. Now, personally, I want to raise my two young boys in a place where they also see other Black folks thriving, right? You don't get that in Palo Alto. Palo Alto is the first place I've lived that has gotten less diverse over the time that I've lived there. And that's kind of cut a multitude of different ways, right? When we took our um, son to visit Atlanta and we came back to Palo Alto, I was walking him to, you know, go to the grocery store to kind of get some dinner. And we walked back. He was four at the time. And he looked at me and said, Daddy, in Atlanta is where all the black people are. In Palo Alto is where all the white people are, right? That's a four-year-old, right? Um, I was proud of him for his ability to be so astute to, like, recognize that. But... You know, it made me wake up to the fact that and check my own privilege. He's gone to kind of the best schools up until that point, like bilingual, like he was going to two daycares. And then I had to realize like none of his classmates looked like him. None of his teachers looked like him. None of his administrators looked like him up until the time he was four years old. Right now in Atlanta, classmates who look like him, friends who look like him, teachers who look like him, uh, a head of school <laughs> who looks like him. And I wanted to make that not only for my son, but also my wife and myself. And that's where I talk about that quality of life arbitrage. Like, this is it, right? It's normal. <laughs> yeah, that's beautifully put. You know, Tristan, it makes me think, so I'm, I'm gay and my wife is from the deep South. And Georgia is the place that we constantly think about moving, constantly. But the thing that we most want is to make sure that wherever we settle, our son will go to school and have at least a couple other peers with families that look a little like ours. Yeah. And it's important. Atlanta has everything, right? Like the infrastructure. And, you know, we see what's happening just even in politics right now. Like it has an energy about itself, right? That is great. And I think the one thing that is going to accelerate this, unfortunately, right, is the COVID stuff. Right. And I mean, unfortunately, because we have to go through this experience in order to kind of reckon with this. But with all these companies saying you can work from anywhere, I think folks are going to really start to think about, like, what kind of life do I want to live? Right. And Atlanta already had such fast growth. I think it's going to even have faster growth. So you should come. Well, listen, you've spoken about the importance of of your faith in your career journey. And I'm just I would love to hear a little bit about how it anchors your work now. When I think about my own prioritization in life, there are three things that I focus mostly on. My faith, my family, my work in that order. And my life has been nonlinear, but it has tracked upwards, 
right? Like my quality of life, my family's quality of life, my friend's quality of life have trended upwards. It's a non-defined path. My steps have been ordered in a way that I would have never anticipated, but each step has always happened on time. So is that faith in yourself, really, or faith in something larger that's guiding you in the right direction if you just oh yeah no i mean my faith uh, clearly like christian jesus god (laughs) like i i have a strong belief that it is not me all that i can do is live according to a set of values that i believe in and try and be as consistent about that as possible right i'm not perfect but i'm getting there um and my own kind of faith and belief and prayer to get me to wherever i'm supposed to be because when I when that happens, the good things happen. Uh, when I kind of practice any symbols of hubris and try and control it myself, the not so good things happen. Uh, so I've learned to <laughs> that I prefer the good things to happen, <laughs> right? Um, and releasing that has been one of the best things that has ever happened. Right at the top of our show, you said your goal early in life was to be wealthy. How has your definition of ambition changed? Oh, it's completely changed. I think my you know, I reflect, I think, like, who do I have the most envy of, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't mean kind of the treacherous kind of envy. I mean, like, the almost celebratory in a way. And, like, the folks who inspire me. You know, it's, it's not the folks that you would typically think, like, the most successful entrepreneurs, et cetera. It's the couple in the middle of the country running an HVAC business that's generating $2 million in cash flow a year. They're about to retire, but no one knows who they are. And they've lived a life consistent with the values that they believe. That to me is nirvana. So, you know, what's important to me, what matters to me, look, the wealth is what it is, right? Like my family, I have a great house, a great home. My kids go to great schools. I have a loving wife, loving family. You know, I've achieved everything. If I kind of reflect back when I was 20 years old, what I wanted, like I've achieved it and I've achieved it very early. For me, the thing that really matters, particularly with the two boys that I have, is to ensure that they're living their life um, consistently through the values that matter to them. And, you know, I will con- try to raise them on the values that I have, right? Um, and whatever values that, you know, they believe are need to be added or taken away from that, they'll come to that decision themselves. But a further precision in the definition of each of those values that we have is to me kind of where not only I want to be, like where I have that perfect description on how I've lived this life through those values, um, but also for them. Right. And I, I feel like if I'm living my life consistently, right, um, and people kind of expect that consistency of me, it will have been a life well lived. That was Tristan Walker, founder and CEO of Walker and Company. Check them out at walkerandcompany.com. Tristan made some big choices and changes to align his life with his values. And I think about this often for myself. How do personal values drive career goals? Come chat with us about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Producer Sarah Storm and I will convene as usual for office hours Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. If you want the link, follow me on LinkedIn at Jesse Hempel or email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And now, if you like the show, please take a moment to weigh in on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Uriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Juliette Ferro and Victoria Taylor help us define success for Hello Monday. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. 
I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening.